This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Twelve hundred BCE. It was the high point of the Shang Dynasty, in a time when tales of great exploration and mystery of the Bronze Age were being formed into the mythologies of ancient China. Stories that some claim to be very, very real. There was one such tale of a skillful magician, an alchemist, and a great thinker known only as Li. His identity has been obscured by the lost pages of Chinese history. However, his story is not one easily forgotten. Beyond magic and alchemy, exploration was indeed another of his exploits. And after disappearing for decades, Li returned and presented to the Shang Emperor a tale of great discovery. He had set out into the abyss of the sea, traversing waters never before seen. And after years of navigation and survival, he reached a new world. A place of massive mountain ranges and mighty rivers. A landscape of great abundance. And he spoke of a place where the people had conquered these landscapes. He had made contact that none had before. The emperor was told of a great people who had been granted an elixir of life by their god but they would not allow Li to return home with such a potion. They demanded 1,000 noblemen, beautiful women, and skilled craftsmen in exchange for such knowledge. Enthralled with the story, the Shang Emperor himself, along with Li, commanded a fleet to venture back to this newfound world. However, they would never again return to China, disappearing. Whether real or not, great myths such as this will always have their place in a very real version of history. And when it comes to ancient explorers, the stories that surface will always fuel a search for new truths, for things yet discovered. Join us on Into the Portal as we discuss myths and legends of great explorations, the possibilities of pre-Columbian contact, and investigate the history of ancient Chinese explorers. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we're back. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. Here we are. Mm-hmm. It is Saturday morning. Saturday, I know. We, we wanted to record on Friday the 13th. We did. But and then we ended up drinking instead. Well, yeah. I had a glass of rosé, and then a glass turned into a bottle. <laughs> so. so we decided it would probably be best to do it in the morning. We're both a little tired. Okay, you know. But we're feeling pretty good, though. We're doing, we're doing good. So here um, we are. I think episode 21 we're on here now. Yeah. Which is pretty sweet. Holy moly. I know, right? That's Time's crazy. Time's just flying by. It really is. And we are, we're talking about some really cool kind of ancient Chinese explorers stuff today. But before we get into the episode, we have a little bit of housekeeping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'd like to say just oh, 
thank you so much. We've got a couple new Patreon members, yep. and we're super excited. Yep. So thank you, uh, Dylan Crema, and to uh, Laura Anderson for pledging your support. Yeah, like, thanks, you, guys. It seriously means the world to us. Like, you don't even know. Like, our heart swells when we <laughs> see that. We're just like, seriously. oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, oh. yeah, so thank you so much, and we'll be, um, yeah, we'll be uh, sending out uh, stickers and things coming up soon. And mm-hmm. Yeah, we're really stoked about that, so thank you. And, yeah, head over to our Patreon page, uh, patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Check out what we have to offer. Yeah. We just put up our King John's Crown Jewels as our first mini-sode. Yeah. You can unlock that at the $5 level. It's funny, too. It's like we call it a mini-sode, but I think it ended up being about 45 uh, minutes. It was at least 45, <laughs> yeah. So it's Almost not, 50. That's but. our, that's Into the Portal's version of a mini-sode. <laughs> <laughs> We also um, have some new iTunes reviews. Yeah. Which is pretty sweet. We do. Yeah. Holy crap. I was actually really, oh, <laughs> I was really uh, shocked actually because we had a whole slew of new ones. Yeah. So we're going to go tag team this, go one mm-hmm. by one. Um, starting with Vinyl Beard. Uh, he gives us a five star review. He says, Journey into Mystery. Into the Portal provides a lighthearted but thorough look into the unknown. From the Flatwoods Monster to Okapogo, this podcast transports you to a weird world that challenges your imagination. Nice. Love that. I like that. Thanks, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's thank great. You. Vinyl Beard. Vinyl Beard. <laughs> yeah, we got another one from Little Mort 37. Um, it's titled Bingeable, five stars. So my sister and I have been binging on this show for weeks. Andrew and Amber make an awesome team, and Amber's laugh is just the best. <laughs> I super heart this show. Aww, thanks, <laughs> Thank little you. Mark. You know what's funny? I actually thought that said bingable. I thought it, she was like listening to it on Bing or something. You know, Ooh, like, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like but the, no, that makes way that more sense. Yeah. It's bingeable. That Duh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Still half asleep, I guess. It's all good. <laughs> uh, then we had another one from Unseen dx if i'm saying that wrong i am so sorry it's d-e and then x capital x yeah Mm -hmm. he says here great listen and great stories five stars Uh, the casual commentary between andrew and amber provides a feeling of being part of the conversation yourself it's awesome to see their passion be shown through these stories as well as their honesty and perspective when it comes to their research if you're looking for some wild superstition and fun speculation this is your podcast Oh, nice. thanks, bud. Sweet. <laughs> these are that. really good, man. Like, these yeah. are really positive. <laughs> really positive. Nice. I know. Oh, so so we got a couple more. So a uh, great new show by Free Thoughts. I've been listening to these two for about a month now, and I love their variety of awesome topics and ha- how in-depth they go. Uh, they put the time into, into re- into resting great and mind engagement content. Engaging <laughs> content. Oh, my goodness. There's a few typos in that one, I think. But download, you <laughs> will not be disappointed. <laughs> Five star review from Three Thoughts. Free thoughts. Oh my goodness, man. You can't talk I, right I now. You can't talk today. No. What's going on here, people? No. Goodness me. You you picked this up from yeah. <laughs> Well, we got one more to cover here. And it's from El Sergio. Uh, he gives us another five stars. He says, amazing quality, personable host. Uh, as a podcaster of nearly eight years, I am jealous of the high quality production the show has for being so young. The hosts have a great chemistry both together and individually, and you can tell they really enjoy the topics they discuss. My girlfriend says, <clears throat> I like her voice. Is she pretty? (laughs) Which I assume is also a compliment of some sort. You guys keep up the great work. Um, I'll always be eagerly waiting the next episode. Nice. That's awesome. Thank you. The funniest thing about all these comments about your voice is the fact that you always say how much you hate your voice. I hate my voice (laughs) And now you're getting all these compliments about it. Your laugh and stuff. It's pretty awesome. I don't even know. I just, yeah. It's so funny. I I I don't get it. I love it. But it's all good. So yeah, thank you so much for the reviews, guys. And um, (laughs) keep them coming. Like, we really appreciate it. We'll always read them out and Mm -hmm. shout you out on the show for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. 
One last thing before we get going, we have an upcoming uh, special series that we wanted to just kind of uh, give a little teaser for. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that for a sec? Well, yeah. Um, it's kind of been in the works for a while mm-hmm. now, and we're really excited. It's actually with one of our uh, fellow PodFix family podcast members. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're doing a series called Historical Hypocrites, Madmen, and Megalomaniacs with Fan Film Boys. So, yeah, yeah that, the, I think we're recording the first of the series this week. Yeah. So I'm not sure when it's actually going to be released, but we're really excited about it. Yeah. 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 So head over to podfixnetwork.com. You can check out those guys. We're there as well and other Mm -hmm. great shows. And yeah, stay tuned for that. It's going to be really fun. Totally. All right. Let's let's get into it. Let's get into it. So. I feel like it's the lights coming down. uh, Like, who wants to be a millionaire? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Set the stage. It's a podcast, but yeah, if people can envision that. (laughs) We are... Okay, so first of all, we put out a call last week um, and the week mm-hmm. be- a little bit earlier in the week before to get ideas for episodes. Mm-hmm. And this was an idea that actually came from uh, one of our new Patreon members, Dylan. Mm-hmm. And a lot of you came at us with really great ideas and we're banking them. There were some yeah. great UFO abduction suggestions. Ooh, some like um, disappeared missing, people? Yeah, disappeared missing persons and stuff. Really oh, cool ideas in the Facebook group. Some cryptid creatures and things? I like, think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a lot of cool ones. But we decided to go with this one and i we're going back to the historical sort back, of corner here <laughs> yeah so we are dealing with ancient chinese explorers mm-hmm. we had uh yeah dylan reach out and i'm obsessed with transoceanic contact theories like pre-columbian pre-columbian theories mm-hmm. and so we gravitated to this one and so here we are here we because are. it's just absolutely fascinating i mm-hmm. honestly i personally feel that the possibilities of ancient peoples reaching you know, North America crossing an ocean is just far more fascinating, far more just crazy to think about than other types of travel and other expeditions and stuff. Like to me, like these stories and these legends of people crossing over, crossing the ocean and, you know, visiting. Whether, whether intentionally or accidentally exactly, or, yeah. you know what I mean? Like exactly. yeah, just the, the sheer idea that the capability was there. Yeah. Like that's really cool to think. Cause like, honestly, in the conventional classroom history, like, you know, lesson setting, like, we are just taught Columbus sailed the ocean, he landed on the shores, yep. and that was the that was the beginning of contact. Yeah. And yeah. there's, obviously, it's been pro- proven beyond a doubt that the Vikings were there before Columbus. Yes, they so. had a settlement in Newfoundland. Exactly. The only thing is, is they just didn't go that much further south than that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's funny, right? We know that definitively. I guess it's important to just state that right off the top because we're talking about China reaching North America well before Columbus in this episode, but mm-hmm. we already know that the Vikings did. Exactly. It's just important to say. And they came from, obviously, the West. They came from the Atlantic. Yeah. So what we're going to be discussing is um, coming from the East, obviously, yeah, from <laughs> from China. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, traveling across the Pacific. So this yeah. is from the other side. Yeah. And, yeah, this is really, really fascinating. We've come across a couple of interesting stories fascinating characters definitely and i'm really excited to just dive right into this yeah mm-hmm. so well okay but before we actually you know dive into the main dish mm-hmm. which i love <laughs> i love our header for oh, save our it, notes save it, but i'm save gonna it. save it <laughs> we 
I guess what we should maybe establish, because we are going to be doing more um, pre-Columbian um, transoceanic contact episodes. Yeah, this is and kind of part on, one. Yeah. Exactly, right. Yeah, so today we're going to be focusing more on the Chinese side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the future, we might end up doing a Norse episode. We might end up doing yeah. focusing on the Irish, those myths. There's some pretty thing. interesting stories from a lot and of And if different... anyone else has any cool, random stories that they want to send in as suggestions, we yeah. would love to hear it, because yeah. we're all those. Definitely. But... I guess, like, with ancient contact theories, there's kind of two areas of interest, or mm-hmm. almost like, like, two areas, two sort of periods. One is a lot more ancient, yeah. um, like, thousands and thousands, like, 20,000 years ago, that type of right. time, where they could have perhaps, <sighs> they could have perhaps uh, migrated through, well, some people um, will point to the Bering Strait as, like, one example. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of people, it's the topic of a fierce debate. And yeah, a lot it's of people been deny sort of disproven that, a little well, bit. Exactly, in some yeah. camps argue that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the the idea that obviously, yeah, like the first kind of wave of, you know, people doing these sort of ancient travel and whether or not, um, you know, even as, as far back as 20,000 years, there were nomads who could have possibly made skin boats and made their way along uh, the the ice sheet, but, uh, you know, via the ocean, mm-hmm. coming from the opposite direction of the Bering Strait, um, coming oh. up and around. And then that was the idea of the Clovis culture kind of combining, converging. Okay. But the point is that that's sort of the first wave, of, that's, right? Exactly. So that's not really what we're going to focus on. No. We are going to focus on more of, like, the second wave, a little bit, <laughs> I want to call it modern, but... More in, modern in, than 20,000 years. <laughs> it is, exactly. Yeah. So this is the idea that there... Well, the first one we're going to start with happens to fall in the 15th century. Yeah. Pre-Columbian, obviously. It was about seven years before Columbus ever set sail. Yeah. And, yeah, I was uh, under (laughs) China's most powerful eunuch. You want to... What's the tagline? No balls, all glory. (laughs) (laughs) And we're talking about um, a guy named... Well, it's spelled Zheng He, pronounced... Yung Ha. Yung Ha. Yung Ha. I don't even... Yeah, sorry. Sorry, I'm totally butchering that. No, I, I think that's actually not bad. Yung Ha. But it, very interesting. He was actually a Muslim Chinese admiral and a eunuch. So, he definitely had very humble beginnings, but he quickly became exactly that. China's most powerful admiral, and he sailed a fleet of, I don't even know, like hundreds, hundreds of ships, but... They made approximately, what, seven voyages, seven world, not world voyages, but seven main exploratory missions throughout his time. Yeah. But, humble beginnings, right? So this guy... Like, he he was, was, his original name, he was actually born under the name Ma He, or Ma Ha, um, to a Muslim family in sort of a, a landlocked area. So it was kind of... It was, it was, it's interesting that he excelled to end up being the, you know, the leader mm. of an ocean-faring Chinese fleet and a very powerful position in China at the time when he was basically born to a farming family in the middle of nowhere, essentially. That's fascinating. It's kind of yeah. crazy. <laughs> but the reason we wanted to start with, with Yong Ha is that he... He, it, we had never heard of him before we started researching this. It's insane because yeah. his accomplishments as a as a mariner are just are outstanding. Oh yeah. And the Chinese treasure fleets that he was commanding mm-hmm. during this time around seventy. Well, the first 
first wave of his explorations was in the 1300s. So, but then the supposed uh, potential trip to the New World, which is what some people believe Yong Ha achieved, mm-hmm. uh, was around 70 years, like you said, before before right. Columbus. Okay. Um, but let, I want to talk about the treasure fleets for a little bit because mm. this is the argument. So it's like some people believe that he could have made it to North America because of the extensive nature of these ships. Yeah. They were absolutely massive. And Yong Ha, like you said, there were seven uh, voyages that essentially were through the Indian Ocean, and they were coastal voyages. They weren't necessarily open ocean voyages, but they were still way further than people had gone before. They were trading with spices with India. They were going... With the Persians, too. With the Persians. Mm. You know, they had visited the coast of Africa. Mm-hmm. There are stories from, you know, people in the, like, the Swahili coasts that they they claim to have Chinese ancestry from mm-hmm. way back when. Not to mention the animals they brought back to exactly. China, right? Yeah. The giraffe, that was a really cool story. Yeah. It was, like, brought back as a gift to the emperor, and literally everyone was stunned in the court because they, <laughs> they had never seen anything like this. Exactly. How the right? heck... Okay, that, again, speaks to... The just the vastness of these ships. Yeah, you're transporting a giraffe. <laughs> yeah, let's let's give the numbers for these because it is yeah. absolutely insane. So yeah. seven voyages with these ships. This is between 1405 and 1433 CE. Mm-hmm. Okay, these ships were over 400 feet long. That's way and, bigger and than s- like a. Well, it's about the size of a um, a soccer field. Right. Is that kind of the something like that, I believe. Mm-hmm. Seven or more masts. Okay. They're the actual crew, or sorry, the the uh, the uh, the main deck area was mm-hmm. as big or bigger than seventy thousand square feet. Jeez. Like these were basically floating cities, and <gasps> and what what they would have is these massive treasure <coughs> ships, and then. A bunch of smaller ships, and I'm air quoting because these smaller ships were still bigger than Columbus's ships. <laughs> so just yeah, just for reference sake, the bigger boats, like the biggest ones, um, that would be approximately three times the size of Columbus's ship. Right. When he made it to America. And that's like a conservative estimate because there's some people arguing that these ships could have actually been much bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's they found rudders for them kind of off the coast in the one documentary we watched documentary we watched. My god, I can't talk today. Yeah. And it was like over forty feet long, just the rudder. Yeah. Um That's insane. Very, very cool. The other cool thing about these ships that kind of lends to the idea that they could have, you know, definitely made it across the ocean, they were way more advanced for their time. They were basically designed after bamboo. So they were inspired by looking at bamboo and how it grew together in sections. Mm -hmm. And so that's how they designed the hull of their ship. Mm -hmm. So they would have individual sections. I believe it was 13 sections inside. And so if one of them, you know, ruptured or if there was a, if there was a leak, then the others would keep the ship afloat. Watertight bulkheads. Watertight bulkheads. Mm -hmm. They also had an intake in the back that would, allow for the ship to raise the front end if they were coming up into a massive wave mm, so they so could help. break through the wave and and the ship would survive like massive swells that's really cool okay well that's going to be super helpful on a seafaring journey right that, exactly <laughs> right yeah that's <laughs> that just speaks to exactly that the sophistication of all of this right like mm-hmm. it's it's really it's it's stunning, like, that we haven't really been exposed to this. Like, you know, like, we, we get our western side of history. We don't really get the eastern side. No. You really have to dig, and you really have to go down those rabbit holes and find this stuff. Yeah. But that is 
That is insane. So basically, he had an armada of like 300 ships. Yeah. And I'm just reading here, a crew of 27,000 people. Yikes. That's, That's a insane. lot of people. That's crazy. And you were telling me that one story about how like in some of these boats, they would literally have pools of live fish. Yeah. So they yeah. would have their own food supply on ready board. to go on board. Yeah. They didn't have to fish off the side or anything. No. So they could have extensive months of travel. That's crazy to yeah. me. Like, that's so cool. And his exploits are really well documented in China, which is why it was so funny that, you know, we haven't, I mean, it's not really that funny. I mean, it's not surprising that we hadn't heard of him, but yeah. super, super famous and well documented in China. He was a great navigator. You know, he used celestial navigation, mm-hmm. knew what he was doing. Really interesting character. Yeah. And so he basically was the figurehead for all these missions. Like we said, there were seven yeah. uh, official ones. And basically the the idea was that China wanted to assert itself as like the supreme power of the seas. Yeah. So they wanted prestige, they wanted respect, and so they engaged in these voyages in order to um, establish trade partners with other, like like we mentioned, with Persia, with India, and all these things, because mm-hmm. they definitely had, and in Africa too, yeah, things like ivory, spices, exotic woods, and wildlife, like we mentioned, the giraffe. Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons for them to be out and about, and it's very interesting. I even, I remember reading, or not reading, learning in my, what was it? It was like some sort of pre-1800s economic world history. Okay. And it was kind of, it was like, you know, the Nile Ferguson, the West and the rest, that type of thing. Like why is the West in, in the position it is as far as like, you know, like I wouldn't call it like global supremacy, but basically it kind of ended up being that way in the, with the industrial revolution and everything else. Mm -hmm. So why did this happen? And like, I remember learning about like the closing of China essentially Mm -hmm. and how, they had this great wave of exploratory, like, you know, like an era of all of this. And then they essentially just shut her down and it was yeah. all politics. It was all just a, just a shift into exactly that, like what they wanted to focus on, what, uh, what they thought the world could offer them. And they basically were like, meh, you know yeah. what, we can take care of our own. And mm-hmm. that was kind of it. And then on the flip side, you get the European powers doing the exact opposite. Yeah. And there's so many fascinating reasons for that. And I remember Jared Diamond had some really cool theories on that. Mm-hmm. We don't get into all of it, obviously, or any of it right now, because it's not really relevant. <laughs> yeah, no, not economic but, history right now. But No, no, but it is very interesting to think that that was the main, like it was um, political prestige and then secondarily economic sort of relations, that type mm-hmm. of thing. Well, and it's interesting too, the shutting down, you know, ended up, in you know documents being lost things being destroyed exactly. a lot of that kind of thing a right lot of records, because yeah. the new yeah the new leadership i mean it's like a lot of things we we've seen a, seen it a lot in the middle east like with mm-hmm. arab springs and stuff like that mm-hmm. it's that yeah you, you want to eliminate your predecessors uh information and kind of accomplishments and stuff like that right and i think a lot of it had to do with the idea that china like the imperial ruler he kind of had this, I wouldn't call it like a, um, oh, what, I don't even know how to really phrase it, but not an insecurity, but like basically he didn't want people looking outside of China. He wanted, he wanted it, you know, he wanted the central authority to reside within the walls. And then that's when you get like that period of uh, right. the building of the wall of China and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But... Yeah, it's just very interesting to think that they thought that that was almost like undermining China's authority over I know, right? its uh, citizens in a yeah. sense. Like that's just one idea, obviously. Right. Like I'm yeah. not sh- that's not the whole story no. by any means. But yeah, very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
What, so, what, yeah, what documents could have been lost? Like, what history could have been, you know, pushed into the corners? Like, if people did, you know, even even people before uh, Zhong Ha. Mm-hmm. That's well, what's and Exactly that. But Zhong Ha, like, yeah, he definitely... People do think that he definitely had the capabilities and he could have made it to the New World. And you had that world map, hey? That was interesting. Yeah, so that's been a very uh, contentious thing for a while now. I think it was kind of surfaced in the late 90s or early 2000s. It was, it's essentially a map of the world that was purchased uh, through a Shanghai dealer, which sounds shady already, but uh, I think it's just because uh, the, 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 the word Shanghai just sounds like you're getting shanghai Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, it's definitely a contentious map because it depicts curvature. So essentially it, it shows that whoever was drawing the map knew the world to be round. Okay. Um, it, the idea is that it was a map that was originally drawn in 1418, so well before Columbus, mm-hmm. but then it was recreated uh, in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Oh. So it was like reproduced, and that's mm-hmm. the copy that people are looking at. Hmm. So, uh, but there's things about it that match up with the date 1418, mm-hmm. but then there's also things that don't. So there's characters, uh, Chinese characters, excuse me, that supposedly don't match up with the era, like phraseology, basically. Also, China. With the 1400s era? Yeah, okay. yeah. And also, there's an argument that China is not depicted in the center of the map. Therefore, oh, so. it couldn't have been Chinese explorer that drew it. That's um, such a Eurocentric view of things, that, though. And that is exact, exactly. And, of course, they do have maps with China in the middle. But, yeah. but uh, at the same time, I feel like if it's just, if it was an exploratory map, like it's mm. a map of where to get, you know, this is where this continent is, this is where this landmass is, I don't think it was necessarily being drawn for, you know, patriotic whatever, right? It was just a map, potentially. Mm-hmm. It's okay. just a map of what, a where tool. things are. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it's really interesting because it's if it was from somebody linked to Zhong Ha, it's it's a really it's a it's it's he compelling actually, it's because it's it's it looks really cool, man. Like it's like an old pirate treasure map it looking really thing, does. right? It's really neat. We'll have it up for absolutely our, on our website for everyone. But so his name actually isn't associated with this map or anything. It was just the time. It's period the time period okay. because that would have matched up with his expeditions. Okay. The argument is that he didn't actually, you know, in heading towards the later stages of those expeditions, the sixth and seventh, he was kind of like, his health was kind of waning. Some people say that he actually died on the last expedition and was buried in off the coast of India. Some say that he made it back to China, spent hmm. the last, his remaining days in China and passed away there. Mm-hmm. And then of course, some people say that that seventh voyage was actually around, you know, t- around the world, basically, like a world trip. And that's where this map comes from. The question is whether it came before the first voyage, after the first voyage, or is this just somebody else who's attributing it to Zhong Ha out of respect or out of whatever? You mean someone coming much later, like in the 16th century? No, I mean either at the same time. Like maybe somebody that he had mentored or something, right? Or one of his navigators. Exactly. Because the thing is, is like people's names change too. We saw that with Mm -hmm. Zhong Ha. His original name was Ma He or whatever it was. And then he gets his like admiral name kind of thing. He ended up, yeah. And then as he rose ranks, his name ended up changing. Mm -hmm. But this idea was really popularized in a 2002 book called 1421. It's called uh, The Year China Discovered America. And Mm. it basically argues that yeah the largest fleet in the world which was this treasure fleet set sail from china 
and proceeded to, yeah, make hmm. it all the way to North America where they interacted with the indigenous peoples of North America. I think it's totally plausible that they could have done that. Yeah. Like, they have that very favorable current, right? The uh, I don't even know if it's called just, like, the Chinese current or whatever, but it runs along that parallel right. that eventually um, meets up with the Californian coastline. Yes. And from there, there's actually two different currents. kind of splits off, so you can go north up to Alaska, or you can go south down to New Mexico. Right. And apparently, if you go south, it, at one point, it gets really, really hairy. <laughs> and a lot of ships have... Uh, essentially been dashed on the rocks. Right. So if you had, like, a Chinese junk or whatever, like, mm-hmm. you know, like a wooden ship of sorts, then who knows, maybe... Like, the, there is definitely the theories that there was massive, um, like, a, sh- a fleet of ships that essentially that happened when they were dashed on the rocks, and there's evidence of perhaps Chinese anchors on right. off the coast of California. We're right. going to get into that. Yes, we that's will. one of our sweet pieces of evidence <laughs> to support all this. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, like, oh, this thing, hey, man, like... So, yeah, not d- directly associated with this tr- map, but was the preeminent <laughs> mariner slash admiral slash figurehead of China yeah. exploring all this stuff. So, yeah, it, it basically plausible. It definitely plausible, and essentially, like, just to close up this section, if, if it is genuine from 1418, this map, like, the recreation of it, then it would have to be from Zhongha. Mm-hmm. It has to be, because there's nobody else that would have had the, the capability, really for that specific time period. Very cool. Very cool. So I think, well, we've got a few more really cool stories that are like from more ancient um, times. Yeah, we're sort of moving, we're we're starting with most recent and moving backwards, which is the opposite of what we normally do. Yeah, but it was the most plausible, right? This sort of idea of Zheng He. And then, yeah, there are these, um, a couple other stories from Chinese classics that we're going to get into. But before we do, we're just going to take a quick uh, promo break from just for our friends over at the Fan Film Boys. So, mm-hmm. yeah, really cool. Like we mentioned before, we're actually going to be doing this fun series with them uh, all about, yeah, scoundrels, megalomaniacs, um, and crazy people in history, which is going to be really fun. And they have a really fun show. Like, it's 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 about film, but it's different because they actually focus on the fan films. Yeah. Like, things like, for example, their latest episode, it was on a fan film about Lord of the Rings. It was called Hunt for Gollum. Crazy. And so, yeah, I feel Very like cool. yeah, they definitely dive into the more fringy nature of film. So if you're into that, like, check them out, man. They're definitely. really fun, entertaining. It's, yeah, it's a good show. Totally. So, anyways. Take a listen to this promo. Mm. Rob, are you a Star Wars fan? Uh, quite a bit, yes. Would you like to see Darth Maul take on a whole bunch of Jedi? Wow, I don't think we ever saw that in the film. What, what do you mean? I'm just a fan film for that. Whoa. Are you a fan of Lord of the Rings? I've seen the movies. Would you like to see what Strider was up to before the Hobbits found him? Well, that sounds interesting, but don't think I've ever seen that before. There's a fan film for that. Nice. Are you a fan of the Predator? Oh, I love the Predator. Would you like to see the Predator taking on medieval knights? That sounds like an awesome story. Where, 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 where was that? There's a fan film for that, too. Wow, that sounds awesome. This is the Fan Film Boys podcast. You can check out all this stuff. Wow. Now, where could I find us? You can find Fan Film Boys on www.podfixnetwork.com. You can check out Fan Film Boys Pod. That's boys with a Z. Boys! On iTunes and anywhere else that you can listen to podcasts. This podcast is for fans of all different genres, fans of filmmaking, and fans of podcasts in general. Make sure that you check us out. I can't wait. And we're back. So yeah, 
Make sure you go check out those guys. Yeah. And now for more stories of ancient Chinese explorers. Mm -hmm. So this story actually picks up uh, about a thousand years before Columbus would have set sail towards America. Yep. So this is uh, 458 AD. And it actually comes from the records of, I'm going to butcher this, but Lang Shu. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm saying it how it's spelled. It's like I'm not saying it how it would be pronounced because. Probably not. Anyways, yeah. that's there, There's always a lot Lang of discrepancies. Lang Shu. Lang Shu. Anyways. And he describes five, the tale of five Buddhist monks that boarded a Chinese vessel along with a few of their assistants. So it was quite, it was like a skeleton crew, essentially. Right. And apparently they traveled, um, they traveled, it's kind of vague. It's like they traveled across the sea. The way they describe it is that they traveled east. But what's probably more likely is that they were traveling a little bit northeast. And okay. then they ended up exactly like how we mentioned, right? Because there was that more favorable current that would have taken them essentially to the coast of California. Right. And so they basically, yeah, the story goes that they traveled up and down this coast. It was kind of like a, a triangle is how I'm picturing it. So more northerly than down British Columbia towards California and then back around. Crazy. Ended up, it took them like 41 years and there was only one monk that made it back. <laughs> Could you imagine going Everyone on a 41 year right? voyage? I don't know. Anyways, yeah, this is like your whole life. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah, so one monk returned to China. It's unclear what happened to the others, if they died, if they remained there voluntarily, whatever. Um, but this one remaining monk, his name was Hui Shen, and he called this land that they had discovered Fu Sang, spelled F U. S-A-N-G. Okay. Yes. And it's called Fusang because of the pervasive amounts of these bushes, these plants that had what they described as red pearl berries that resembled mulberries. Interesting. <clears throat> yeah. And he had quite the tale to tell. Um, apparently, he, uh, he described well-organized communities of natives. He described an abundance of natural resources that they were using, um, including, like, paper that they made from this tree, this fusang tree. Interesting. Um, as well as the cultivation of, like, deer, that type of thing, like right. domestication and that type of thing. And they would use huh. the meat, they'd make the milk into cheese, all this stuff. He actually described how they had a written language, too. So this is weird to me. Yeah. This is one of the main discrepancies, because if he's describing North American natives, then... They didn't have a written language. It was all language. oral, all oral tradition. So that's kind of weird. But anyways, so he, um, <clears throat> yeah, so he traveled along. Apparently they left um, images of Buddha along the way as they went. And they tried to sort of um, teach the people about the ways of Buddhism and all this right. kind of stuff. Okay. And very interesting. <laughs> Apparently, yeah, so he, I don't know, like a lot of people take this story to not be very plausible because of other writings that the same author wrote, including the story called, I think it's called The Kingdom of Women or something, and it's a very out there account. Okay. And a lot of people, a lot of Chinese were actually embarrassed by it, and yeah, <laughs> so they were like, oh, this guy's kind of a weirdo. But okay. not to totally poop on his account, saying, <laughs> because I think it's really fascinating. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, so like I said, he describes these trees. Um, they kind of resemble bamboo in youth, but then they grow really quick and they can use the bark to make material for clothing, for paper, all this stuff. Um, he actually described how there was 
prisons. Like, they had a prison system. They had one in the north and one in the south. And that they actually had no war because they didn't have any weapons. Which actually, I don't know, it all seems like very, like, a fantasy tale to me in a certain sense. It's but a, yeah, it's like if there's elements of it where it's like, oh, did he actually see, you know, a species of plant that was North American or whatever, right? Or or exactly. is it just, or is this just, yeah, just a, just exactly. a fantasy? So it does come from the Chinese classics, and it was found, like, rediscovered by European scholars in the 1700s particularly this guy called De Guinness. He was a French scholar. Okay. And his account is sort of recorded in this book called Pale Ink, Two Ancient Records of Chinese Exploration in America. And it's by Henriette Mertz. But anyways, yeah, so she kind of describes how this French scholar, he came across this account of Fu Sang in 1761, and he believed that the lands described were none other than Mexico. Wow. So, yeah, he he kind of did his own research, and he actually presented his findings or his interpretations in a paper called The Investigation of the Navigation of the Chinese to the Coast of America and as to some tribes situated in the eastern extremity of Asia. Uh, okay. <laughs> and it basically was a spark point for intense debate in the Orientalist European scholar community. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people went back and forth. Um Essentially, his paper was unrivaled for about 70 years until this other guy came up with a, a very, I don't even, I don't even want to mention this guy because he's such a jerk. <laughs> but anyways, he was a Prussian named Klaprolf, Okay. and he was very high, highly critical of this theory. He decided in his little mind that the Chinese were not nearly advanced enough to know the difference between South and East. That's when he concluded and he basically, wow. he essentially dismissed any and all Chinese innovation and ability, and he didn't even recognize that they had come up with the magnetic compass. So it's like, um, so these people, they have the compass first before Europeans. They don't know the difference between East and South. I think yeah. it got that a little wrong. <laughs> but yeah. anyways. I mean, this is, we're talking about a, a country where the people, like, even even going back to the alchemy episode, like, these mm-hmm. people invented gunpowder. They invented, like, they, yeah. they knew what they were doing, man. Yeah. Like, they had tinfoil. Yeah. Like, Come on. But anyways, yeah, I was kind of mad about that. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit. Because it's such a cool, it's a really cool story, and there is a lot of, like, um, speci- specificities to it that kind of lend support for its legitimacy, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, just even the fact that, yeah, they were very specific. Like, they talked about how Fusang was about 20,000 Chinese miles away from the Great Han country, as well as east from the Middle Kingdom. So, Middle Kingdom was actually China. That's right. how they referred to it. Yeah. So, they had, like, you know, they had reference points, and they... I just... I don't know. I feel like it's just... It's a lot to kind of just be like, oh, just made up fable kind of thing. Like, you know... Yeah, it's it's one of those things, right? Like, I, you, I, I want it to be true, obviously, Me too. right? And I, I, I personally feel like there's the best evidence for all of this is yet to come, um, mm. unless it's gone, <laughs> like outright well, gone, because yeah. the, because it's either it was destroyed in uh, in the changing hands of power in Chinese history, or it's been destroyed by by nature and weather here, like evidence mm. that's that was here at one true. time, but. I think there's still probably stuff out there to find. And the thing is, there is, there definitely is physical evidence. And we're going to get into that because there's, yeah, that's, that's important. That's a big part of it. But we want to start off with the anecdotes, the stories, the narratives, and then get into that because, yeah, that's just how we roll. Absolutely. (laughs) That is how we roll. There was another really interesting story, but it's not, uh, there's no date to go with it though. Oh, Um, this was the really cool one. I like this. This one's strange. So 
it basically goes, the story goes that there was a skillful explorer uh, slash magician is basically how it was described. But I don't want to give the impression that like magician, it's not magician in the sense that we think of it, right? No, like kids' birthday like parties pulling rabbit out of the hat. Yeah. It's almost more a- akin to alchemist. Mm-hmm. Um, Transformer. Transformer. And, yeah, totally. Yeah. So there was this guy named Lee uh, and he wrote about his... What, was I, feel that a full like, name? I feel like I might have, because I was the one that originally wrote this down. I feel like I kind of just put that in there. No, I, no. well, I don't <laughs> think they gave, like, a full name for him. This no, was from the, uh, the In Search, search of, of yeah. uh, way back, you know, with Nimoy. <laughs> so much fun. Nimoy. <laughs> but anyway, this guy, he supposedly went out on some journeys, right? Like, the emperor at the time, which, of course, we don't know what time period, mm-hmm. had sent him out on uh, a series of journeys. He basically comes back with writings about how he had visited a place full of mighty rivers and mountains, and that upon his return, he presented this report. Oh, sorry, we have the emperor. So Emperor Shang. Yeah, and that was honestly, I'm not sure about the spelling. Um, I was going off just the pronunciation that was in the In Search of Doc, so it was okay. like, I, it could be the Shang dynasty, which does make sense. Right, and that would have been around... Shang Dynasty. That was BCE, wasn't it? Yeah, it would have been about 3,300 years ago. Okay. So definitely well before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, sorry, where am I at here? <laughs> so anyway, so this guy goes out, comes back, basically describes North America, essentially. And he presents this report to the emperor about these distant lands and says to him that those who are... He, basically, there's an elixir of life waiting in this new world. <laughs> Okay. How convenient. Right. <laughs> it's just on the other side of the ocean, man. <laughs> but then it immediately does makes me think of alchemists. It's like this guy's definitely an alchemist. Totally. Right? Yeah. He's he's talking about the elixir of life and he's talking about he's trying to bait the emperor into basically getting him to return to mm-hmm. this new world. Mm-hmm. He pleads with the emperor for this. He basically says that in order to return and, and obtain this elixir, he has to send exchange of noblemen and beautiful women and skilled craftsmen. Um, <laughs> I to, think it was a thousand noblemen. You to get. <laughs> a thousand noblemen, a thousand. okay. <laughs> it, it, you know, Very and, specific here. And, and in response, you know what's funny, actually? Oh, sorry. Go oh, ahead. oh, sorry. No, sorry. no, no, go ahead. Go. I'm totally interrupting you because I'm getting a notion in my head now. I'm thinking, this guy was a trickster. He totally, yeah, he tricked his emperor into basically sending out a ton of resources and a ton of people. And then what happens in the end, Andrew? They never come back. They never came they back. Never, they never return. Maybe they established their own colony somewhere on, in the new world. Maybe. And that is actually, that could correlate to some anecdotal evidence uh, from North American indigenous people. Yeah, that's that right. we've come across and very, very interesting. Uh, the Rainbow Bridge, for example, that's a very, I feel like that could be the connection. If they literally had a fleet of ships, like there was a fleet. I don't know how many exactly, but there was a lot. Definitely. And they sent out a ton of resources. Yeah. So, and even before the time of Zhong Ha, where mm-hmm. with the treasure fleet, the Chinese still had, you know, technology that was advanced enough to get them across. Like their ships yeah. were really well built. And mm-hmm. like I mentioned, right, there is evidence of. The, okay, so basically, off the coast of California, I can't remember. I think it's like the Palo. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. I don't have it in front of me. But there is a about um, an acre or so. In, on the ocean floor, just off the coast, off this peninsula. And 
scattered in this acre, there's about, I can't remember, there's dozens of these yeah, um, dozens. acres, supposedly. These these massive rocks with holes drilled through them. Some of them can be ma- natural. Mm-hmm. I mean, we definitely have seen that, but there's definitely ones that are man-made, yeah. manufactured. Yeah. And you can see the evidence. There's definitely a difference. Yeah. And there's essentially a whole slew of these in this one area, which leads me to believe that there was a massive, um, like a, a, a fleet of ships that were wrecked that basically were dashed on the rocks, maybe of the peninsula, that type of thing. And that actually, that Larry Pearson guy who looked into the anchors in the 80s, he he kind of came to that conclusion too. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. like that, it makes sense. And what if these people that were dashed on the rocks, there were survivors that came to shore and then they ended up intermarrying Inter- yeah. and just becoming part well, of that population? Totally. Like if there was enough people, it was a thousand people yeah. or more potentially, right? Yeah. If, we're, if we're talking uh, sort of more of a Zhongha exactly. type expedition with these with ships carrying much more people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, plaus- it's, it's plausible. Could, and then they would have uh, influence on the physical features of the population. Yeah. And there are people from the Pomo area um, from that tribe that talk about how there are essentially people there with a bit of lighter skin, a bit of almost like what they described as a slanted eye kind of thing. Right, like slightly more Asiatic Asiatic. features. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. totally. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into that in in our, uh, a little bit more closer (laughs) to the end here, because that's part of one of the theories. I'm just jumping the gun. But you know what's interesting about that story, right? That anecdote from In Search Of, Mm -hmm. actually found in that Pale Ink book that I just referenced uh, before, the Henrietta Mertz book. Right. She describes the exact same sort of account, a very ancient account from Chinese texts dating to approximately um, 2250 BCE. Wow, crazy. And it's known as the Classic of the Eastern Mountains, and it actually refers to several sites that could correspond to geography um, across Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, into Canada. Wow. And it's about, yeah, they describe, uh, I think it was about 12 different mountains. Um, Yeah, for example, like the Sun Mountain, the Mountain of the Creeping Plants, um, under which supposedly lies gold and gems and all this kind of interesting stuff. So lots of natural resources and things. Right. Um, and it actually, yeah, it, it looks as though like people have done a lot of research into this and they've kind of mapped it out. And it's almost, it describes a chain of mountains um, that run through Colorado, exactly like I said, Wyoming, Montana, Saskatchewan, then Manitoba. Like the like the Rockies? The, the, the most significant peaks. Crazy. Exactly. It's not a... Is that the one Would it be the Colorado Rockies and then moving up north? I don't know. I don't know enough geography. I can't remember. It's like the Cordillera Range or something. Okay, okay. If anyone knows That's more, so crazy, though, because it's like, yeah, it's little, little small details like that, and then people have kind of remapped it out, and that's what it matches up yeah. with. That's and wild. That's, that's crazy, because that's, like, really far into the continent, right? Like, that's not just coastal. No, that's... Well, and that was the story with the monks, too, right? Like, the, the earlier one, that they just trekked inland. Like, they just freaking started walking, and they made it all the way to the Grand Canyon, basically. Supposedly, yeah. Um, you know... That immediately reminds me of uh, the Kincaid's Cave episode of oh, Astonishing yeah. Legends, huh. um, where supposedly there was, uh, yeah, some statues and, and caverns and things discovered that there was Buddhist uh, Buddhist markings and Buddhist statues and different things like that, Eastern things. Well, there you go. Of course, that would have been more ancient, though, than the, uh, the monks' journey. Than the one account journey. from the monks, yeah. Yeah. The other thing that was funny, mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention about that when in the in the documentary where it was like that they traveled twenty thousand leagues, which was just funny because we just watched twenty thousand leagues under the sea, and, and, and for the longest time I always thought leagues was depth, but it's just distant. But it's distance. Oh yeah. Right. So it's like vertical we, or horizontal. Yeah. Like yeah. So anyway, it's funny. 
Don't yawn. Sorry. Sorry. Scratching. No, it's all good. So anyway, yeah. So that that's that's really interesting though that you found that in the pale ink. I know. I thought that was really cool. And honestly, like I only had access to the Google preview, so I couldn't get the full the full scoop. But mm-hmm. that would definitely be one that I would love to just pick up from the local library totally. and just kind of dive into. Totally. Um. So we're kind of slowly migrating, pun intended, I suppose, <laughs> into uh, into our sort of. <laughs> Evidence section. Like, evidence and theory sections kind of blended together for us for this one, right? Exactly. I feel like we've kind of covered, honestly, like, the anecdotes are the theories in, in a sense because it's right. like, it sets the basis, the premise of when they could have been and all this kind of stuff. Right, right. But, yeah, we're, like, physical evidence now. Like, let's dive into that a little mm-hmm. bit because we've, we've alluded to it. We've talked about, mentioned the anchors and this kind of stuff, but there's mm-hmm. definitely more than that. Way, way, way more. Definitely. I mean, and it's, and a lot of it is, and it's all debatable. Yeah. So, but <laughs> yeah, I want, very debatable. very debatable. So, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the Shang dynasty because this was a, a dynasty in China, 1200 BCE. Can I just. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's Shah dynasties. <laughs> it's Shah <Shred> dynasties. <laughs> That's an always sunny reference. <laughs> Shady nasties. <laughs> oh dear. Our inside jokes are just the worst. But yeah, no, the Shang Dynasty, so around 1200 BCE, people argue that they influenced the Mayan and Aztec civilizations. So that they were basically, that they had made it to the coast. And this would match up with the, potentially with the magician account. There you go. So, and I guess that would be, yeah, so around 1200 BCE. So that makes sense. So well before Zhongha. Well, well, well before. But anyway, the argument is essentially that there is evidence of Asian influence and Mesoamerican stuff, basically. (laughs) They're jade, they're jade ornaments, they're tools. Um, There's these blades made out of jade called celts that are distinctly um, from the Shang era. Like, they, they are, it's the material and it's the same style that they would have used. Mm hmm. Would. I mean, the question I have is, like, even if there was this contact, is that just from trade? Or is that from actual people staying there and then teaching people how to Mm. use materials? Of course, Mesoamerican uh, scholars, most of them reject this. This is coming out of different camps, right? Right. Because they're they're focused on their localized history, right? And and they don't want to, you don't want to, they don't want to admit that that it could have potentially been influenced by Chinese explorers, like, quite frankly, right? Exactly. The same way that, you know, European scholars don't want to uh, really consider evidence of any pre-Columbian transoceanic contact mm-hmm. because it would just mess with the There's history academic books. stuffiness going on, perhaps, perhaps. And, like, yeah, it's, it's easy to draw correlations where perhaps correlations are just coincidences. Um, yeah, there was definitely evidence of, yeah, so basically the Olmec, that's the oldest... Um, North or not North American, sorry. Um, Central American. Central American civilization. Then it goes into the Maya and Aztec. Aztec. And, yeah. And I came across evidence too, like of the yeah, going back to like the jade and everything. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there was like jade burial masks found. Right. And they were exact in the exact style and everything of the Chinese. Right. And same with like some of the. Um, they also alluded to the style of the calendar. And, like, the Mayan calendar, that circular, yeah. and then also um, various, like, stone statues and things like that that had, like, um, dragons' yeah. faces yeah. and all sorts of, like, things that were very Oriental-influenced, seemingly. Very, definitely. And this that, that's where the thing with the Olmec gets a little uh, 
is a little strange because a lot of people argue that, for example, the Olmec basalt heads, these giant basalt heads that they're famous for, are distinctly African. Like, they're very distinct African features. Hmm. Um, But then there's other carvings that are a little bit more Asian-looking. But the thing that I find interesting about that in relation to Chinese explorers is that we know that Chinese explorers were all over the coast of Africa. If early Africans... I mean, they, they 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 were seafaring peoples, too. But... If the Chinese were already interacting, trading, doing stuff on the coast of Africa, maybe they had a hand in exploration. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe they had a hand in sending a prince from out, right? You know what I mean? Like yeah. helping some other, facilitating some contact, some trade potentially. And that could account for the African features and Olmec yeah, stuff. Totally. But it's still related to the Chinese potentially. I don't know. It's just ancient diplomacy, man. Who yeah. knows what's going on? Totally. How, how intricate the relations were and who know who yeah and, and like you said like other similarities like with just how stuff looks so like the olmec had carvings of uh serpents that were very similar to for resembling dragons mm-hmm. like chi- chi- chinese, chinese dragons, uh, yeah. art also some of the characters the actual characters of uh, writing basically on some of these jade pieces and stuff supposedly from some uh asian scholars were like this one guy i actually have We'll post everything. I've lost the name, but he said he, you know, he's taking a look at these things and right away, clearly these are Chinese characters. He's asserted that there's, that I can read this clearly. This is clearly Chinese. (laughs) This is clearly Asian. I came across, yeah, very similar. Um, This guy, John Ruskamp, he, he basically, yeah, he was saying the exact same thing. It wasn't on actual jade, like the blades or anything, but it was on rocks in America. Right. In the area of New Mexico, California, and Arizona. And he claims that these pictograms are, yeah, exactly, from the ancient uh, Chinese dynasty of the Shang. So, again, this, yeah, definitely correlates. And he basically says that these uh, symbols uh, prove, obviously, that the Chinese were exploring North America Hmm. long before Europeans. And the symbols themselves, actually, he interpreted them. And he says that they give details of journeys that honor the Shang king. Wow. And he actually claims to have identified 84 pictograms, which match unique ancient Chinese sites in various locations. So, yeah, apparently these actually describe, um, like, sacrificial offerings and things. Wow. Which is very interesting. Um, and, okay, so this is this is it here. So it's basically one of these sets of pictograms was describing the sacrifice of a dog. And this was, <laughs> this is kind of important because dog sacrifices were very popular in this period, in the Shang Dynasty period and the oh, okay. Zhao Dynasty, which followed after. Okay. But again, yeah, so it definitely conforms with the syntax and with just the general culture and the general um, um, modus operandi of like right. ritual practice and that right. type of thing. Uh, so yeah, I thought that was really, really cool. I just, I, who knows, man, like... Who knows? Totally. I think that it's it's kind of silly to ignore all this influence. I, absolutely. I mean, and and again, like there was there was coins found on the beach in British Columbia that were oh, Chinese, yeah. and that's that, another uh, one. The ca- yeah. When you just mentioned the calendar, that's what it, yeah. it reminded me of that because the guy that found it. I mean, this has happened multiple times, but in the one case, the guy found it and he thought he's like, I'm looking at a Mayan calendar on a coin because mm-hmm. that's what it looked like. But then when he had it. We brought it into the Anthropology Museum in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it ends up being Chinese. The question is, 
I mean, context is everything, right? Like, mm-hmm. even though the coins date to a certain period, it may have been brought there much later. Yeah. It's different when you find pieces that are in, say, a burial mound or that haven't been discovered. So when you're trying to make connections with, like, say, the Olmec or other Mesoamerican civilizations, for example, I feel like that stuff has a lot more credence to it, even though it's subjective interpretation a lot of the time Mm -hmm. rather than actually physically finding something like a coin. I think the anchors and ship wreckages and all those things are a little bit more, a little bit more substantial, but yeah, but it's still really interesting that these coins are there. They're on the coast of British Columbia. The jade is there. The, the, yeah, the inscriptions are there. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, did you want to get into the Chinese anchors then, or? I mean, well, we kind of already did a little bit. But the thing is, okay, yeah, so there's definitely some stuff that we didn't cover on that, so, like, the, yeah, the skeptical approach to this, because there is the idea that, yes, on the one hand, the, this technology, this type of anchor was used by the ancient Chinese, Mm -hmm. the mariners, but there are other alternatives, so... (laughs) And just conflicting evidence. <laughs> I don't know. So essentially, essentially, some people believe that these are ancient. Some people have done testing on a few of these anchors and determined that they are from the Chinese coast. Yeah. Um, there has been other people in the community that claim that these are actually like local rock. So that the discrepancy for me comes from like, are these people examining different? anchors right <laughs> and, and and to me it's not conclusive either way right because even if you do get anchors that are made from local rock are you testing every single one of these because right. if you aren't then you're not exactly you're not conclusively proving either way no i uh, so again like i mentioned yeah i was about about an acre of um off the coast here of california where these stones were found in 1974 and, uh, yeah, um, that's Larry Pearson guy. He was one of the main researchers in this. And he he came to the conclusion that he believes they were ancient and that he believes that exactly that, that it was the result of a fleet of ships that were essentially shipwrecked. Yeah. And that makes sense, right? Because the wood is no longer there because this was this was potentially, you know, 1200 BC or, or whatever, exactly. it, whenever this voyage happened. It could have been Zhengha still mm-hmm. and that would have been a long technically technical term a long ass time ago like so <laughs> um yeah but okay but on the flip side though that's just one interpretation because right. again you do get the idea that some people believe these are much more modern that they could have been crafted in the early 1900s by chinese fishermen or portuguese whalers so <laughs> there's a lot of options here and then yeah. still others believe like these are just naturally occurring and that is the case with a lot of them you can get things like um sea urchins like burrow like they make holes and stuff yeah that was one one explanation but yeah. it's like but the idea that there is organic material um that forms the nucleus of a rock that eventually erodes away and right. leaves a hole yeah like something like uh, whalebone was the yeah. one suggestion from a fellow right but I, yeah i don't know there was this guy though james r moriarty and in 1981 he tested some of these stones and he did find that they originated from a chinese quarry which is kind of fascinating. And I'm not going to, like, this is from an LA Times article here, and uh, this is a quote from Moriarty. He says here that, uh, actually, no, sorry, this isn't from Moriarty. This is from Pearson. He said that basically between 1500 and 3000 BC, the Chinese were using stones as anchors in their trans-Pacific voyages to the New World. So this guy believes that they are making multiple voyages. So, Well, I mean, yeah. if they found a route and they found the, the right currents... 
that's to do just it. a yeah, right. and there are people that suggest yeah, they will support that and say like even this yeah, Dr. Peter Niller, for example, he says that definitely ocean currents could have been used thousands of years earlier to traverse the same coastlines, you know. The yeah. monks, uh, Fu Sang, that type of thing, and yeah. then even even more ancient, right? Into the into the yeah, the nomads and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I, I really wanted to talk about the um about the the bridge. The Rainbow Bridge. Oh yeah. Can we yeah, get we to that? Really, we haven't really. Dived I mean, we're coming down that, to yeah. it, I and mean, we, 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 I guess we can. There's this section here on the Cherokee, which is kind of interesting too, but it doesn't really necessarily match up. Yeah. But it was just kind of. So we'll, we'll probably end up talking about this in another one of the parts for this series for for contact. Mm-hmm. But there was an interesting uh, point made about the Cherokee people and how they possibly have a Hebrew ancestry from the lost tribes of Israel. <laughs> So this just goes to show how many different ideas there are out there mm-hmm. that ancient peoples had crossed over and that there's potentially like genetic lineage. Hmm. Um, cool. And that's what kind of leads into into this next story, right? The Rainbow Bridge story. The Rainbow story. Bridge story. Um, you've yeah. had a good handle on that. Do you want to... Well, yeah, we first came across this one in the In Search of Documentary. And again, yeah, this comes from Larry Pearson's research. Or he went to see um, a researcher at the Humboldt University who was an, this was, this was his words, not mine, the American Indian Center. Yeah. <laughs> so Bobby Lake was his name. And uh, he was an expert that told the story of the indigenous Pomo of California and their mythology of the giant bridge, the rainbow bridge that connects their mainland to a far off distant land in the east. Right. And, uh... Or no, in the west. In the east or the west? <laughs> I even know. Heading east from heading, the west. Like heading, across the Pacific. Heading east? You'd be heading west, wouldn't you? They would be, like, no. They, if you're, the, if you're, the Chinese would the, be heading yes. east and they would be heading west if they're looking. Across. Right. Okay, right. Sorry, yeah. sorry. It's just a matter of your The earth is round. <laughs> wow. That's so, yeah, this is really interesting. The Pitt River Indians and the Pomo. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Sorry. I that, this is this, this is was from direct the, quotes from the <laughs> thing. Search of yeah. documentary. I feel really bad. It's okay. It's that. the 1960s people. So this is they were referring uh, to the indigenous peoples exactly. as the Pomo Indians, which is obviously not politically so, correct. No. But anyway. So the Pit River and the Pomo indigenous people, they have the mythology um, where essentially there were a race of people that arrived on the shores and they described them as very similar to their features, but that they had a lighter, more yellowish skin with a little bit more of a, what was described as a slanted eye. And okay. So essentially, essentially, I don't even know. Like I, they, the story's kind of vague. Like they stayed for a bit and then they left and they, they, when they left, they said, there was some flooding going on, which kind of mm-hmm. reminds me of like the Noah's Ark kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, like, like maybe a great it was in flood the... story. Exactly. Yeah. So this could be like tens of thousands of years ago, potentially. But anyways, um, yeah, no. So they basically had this sort of, um, I don't even know what to call it, like a metaphorical bridge that connected the two, two societies, the two communities. Yeah. And there was actually spiritual leaders that would go to the tops of mountains and claim that they were having sort of like a, a communion or some sort of connection, that type of thing. And okay. Yeah. So it was a very, I, I think, yeah, exactly. It's a metaphor for a bridge connecting people. Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. they're always connected, whatever. But, um, so was the idea essentially that this could have been from a, a fleet that was also kind of dashed on the rocks or something or it's very vague they, though. Cause how the hell would they have gotten home? 
Yeah, well, they would have had to, like, build new ships and navigate their way back or something, but that would have been pretty difficult. But it's, but it is fascinating because in these people's mythology, they have this, they have ancestry, they have Asiatic ancestry, Mm -hmm. it's essentially what they claim, Mm -hmm. um, that they have, that they feel that they look similar to ancient Chinese, Mm -hmm. that they have skin colors that are different than their sort of very, very close neighboring indigenous populations. And the fact that that's like deep, deep embedded into their mythology is there's something there because it's all oral tradition, right? For the Mm -hmm. most part, other Mm -hmm. than pictograms and things like that. So that's, that's embedded, that's embedded deep. Something had to have started that. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And they're even in the documentary, they did have this uh, one tribe member. Her name was uh, Florence Shaughnessy. And she kind of had that exact theory that, yeah, that essentially intermarrying and um, interbreeding. <laughs> I don't know. Is that the word to well, use? Just, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but, yeah, she said that basically, yeah, she, her idea was that there was a fleet of Chinese ships that had been dashed upon the jagged rocks of uh, the Oregon coastlines a little bit. Very long. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So very I, interesting. I, yeah, I think, I think that she's got some too, man. Yeah. I don't know. But. Well, what are your ultimate thoughts here? Like, I mean, obviously we're going to have a million other theories as we push forward with this series. Yeah. But specifically for Chinese explorers, I mean, where are you at with this? I think there could have been... Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Quick yawn. I think there could have been a couple different periods in which there was contact. Yeah. I don't... I'm not subscribing to one in particular, but I think that it's very plausible. And I think that it's silly to dismiss any and all of these accounts because of a maybe lack of physical evidence to accompany the anecdotal whatever but but then you do get remnants you do get pieces right and people put it together and i don't want to say like yeah you can you can paint it a million different ways but in the end like i i really do believe that it's a possibility yeah Um, no i definitely do too and i i think one of the arguments like against a lot of these uh, theories uh, in general, not just for Chinese explorers, is that, you know, where's all the physical evidence, mm-hmm. right? So it's all sort of inter- different interpretations of physical evidence, but where's like the hard physical evidence? So it's like we have the anchors, potentially mm-hmm. hard physical evidence. We mm-hmm. have some uh, inscriptions on rocks and stuff like that. And then we have supposed accounts of journeys and things like that too. Exactly. But the point I'm trying to make is that if the Chinese made it over and they were interacting with indigenous peoples, those peoples don't have written language. Mm -hmm. So the one account of them writing stuff down, that's a little bit wishy up in the air for me, but it makes sense that there wouldn't be a ton of physical evidence. Then people aren't writing about their, these new peoples coming to visit them. There Mm -hmm. may be some pictograms or drawings that we find eventually, but if the Chinese are all are very secretive about what they do. And later on, there's a shutting off of China. They're the only ones who would have records of, of interacting right Mm -hmm. and if it was just trade and not settlement other than potentially a fleet dashed on the rocks and intermingling Mm -hmm. then there's not going to be any physical evidence of like chinese establishments like buildings and structures and things like that it was just contact and trade Mm -hmm. so absence of evidence is not evidence of absence yeah so you, you can't just say where's the right because there's so much anecdotal and other evidence, other types of evidence. <laughs> exactly. So I believe that they, I, I think that 
It's going to be fun to move forward here with other theories because I think these Chinese ones, a lot of them are, are quite compelling. I mean, mm-hmm. the treasure fleets of Zhongha, like just the technology that they had. It's insane. It kind of, yeah. It's, <laughs> again, like just to reiterate what we said just off the top of this episode, like it's kind of amazing to think that it's not so mainstream, like yeah, these ideas really. and, and, and just the history of it, right, from the Chinese perspective. Like, Even just on pure size of the ships alone, going back to Zhongha, like way bigger than <laughs> the, the Columbus Way more fleets. impressive. Man. So it's like they made it across the ocean, bad weather, whatever. Mm-hmm. Why is it that 70 years prior ships that were three times the size or more and were traveling with hundreds of ships? So even if you lose some ships, exactly, something's going to make it across, right? Yeah. Of something. There's 27,000 crew on mm-hmm. one. Like no, no, no. Like in the entire or t- fleet, or, or, in the yeah, armada. Yeah, in the in yeah, in the armada. Yeah. Somebody's gonna make it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Whether by accident or on purpose, like somebody's <laughs> gonna make it. <laughs> totally. So. So anyway, that's that's uh yeah that basically wraps up this episode and um that's the scoop there, folks. That's the scoop on ancient Chinese <laughs> we explorers. We want to hear what you have to say. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Like, what are your thoughts on this? What do you think of Zhong Ha? Do you think of what do you think of the, his potential world map? Yeah. I mean, is that? Do you subscribe to the more recent sort of um, ideas on the, the possibility that these people could have, or do you think it's more plausible the more ancient examples and things like that? Yeah. There's so many possibilities, and reach out to us. Like, yeah. get on, like, our, yeah, our our <laughs> Facebook forum group is amazing. Like, we've got a lot of really active members, which is yeah. cool. Yeah, it's dope. Um, as well, like, DM us if you don't want to, like, you know, if you're... Yeah, you can always send us a message or, on Instagram or Twitter. Yeah. Um, at Into the Portal 1, at Into the Portal Podcast on Instagram. Mm-hmm. We love getting emails. We've been getting some new, Ooh. more emails lately from people, which is yeah. really awesome. So, into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. You mm-hmm. can send us anything that's on your mind. Yeah. Um, and if you want, if you have a particular pre-Columbian theory that you subscribe to that you really, really like and maybe want that to be the next one in the series, let us know. Please, yes, because, yeah, we are totally into listener suggestions. We want to make this as fun as possible for all you guys. And, yeah. and honestly, it makes it more fun for us when we, like, when we get that definitely, input, right? Definitely, So much like, more fun. All right, we're on the right track. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's do this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's, it, this is just great. I love it. Yeah. Um... So, any final thoughts? I kind of, I, yeah, that was my conclusion. Yeah. I'm, I feel like my um, wee bit of a hungover brain is about to just kind of. <laughs> yeah, mine's about to and... explode too. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for bearing with us, folks, on yeah, this hungover just, recording today. Sorry, <laughs> there's a little bit. Of... <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a word garble. <laughs> anyway, so thank you so much for listening, and until next week on Into the Portal. Mm-hmm.
is a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com.